2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to ask, as is our custom here at the Bridge Church, that you would stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. 2 Peter chapter number 3. Beginning with verse number one. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the, he the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things of them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. 
Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In this little letter from the Apostle Peter, who was called and walked along the Lord Jesus Christ, he has written to his readers to remind them of the truth, to make them aware of false teachers and false teaching who live loosely. And finally, here in chapter 3, he gets to the heart of the matter and why he's writing. And he simply wants to remind his readers that the Lord is coming back. And what a needed word for the church today. We need to be reminded that Jesus is coming. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3. The first thing that Peter shares with us in this letter to his readers and to us is that we need to remember the truth about the Lord's coming. We need to remember the truth of the Lord's coming. That's the first section. Excuse me. Our text opens up with Peter saying, he has written two letters to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should Remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter uses the word and the tool of reminder to stimulate their mind about the coming of the Lord. This theme of reminder is important as Peter has mentioned it several times in his letter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he writes, I think it right, as long as I am the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter's aim is to remind us of what we already know because you are now being exposed to new teaching that is false. Reminder. It's important because memory tends to fade fast when under pressure and when new and attractive teaching comes. Beloved, we tend to forget truth. So we need to be reminded of the truth of God's word. There are three sources that Peter gives to us for reminders. First, he says, I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. This would have been an important source of truth, as Peter said in chapter 1, verse 21, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets, beloved, spoke the inspired word of God. Inspiration in the Greek, it literally means breathe out by God. 
The prophets, when they spoke, they spoke the very words of God. And beloved, because it was inspired, it was infallible and authoritative. The word of God is true, it is without error, it is therefore reliable and can be trusted. It's authoritative because it comes from God who is truth. It is the standard by which all truth is to be measured. Therefore, he says, I want you to remember the truth of God's word as spoken through the prophets. But also, I want you to remember the truth of the commandment of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The very words of Christ are truth to live by. They were not only spoken by Christ, but they were also relayed through his apostles. And because they speak truth received from Christ, their words too are inspired, infallible, and authoritative. Beloved, this is a word for us. I have no authority on my own unless I am preaching and teaching from the word of God. We have to be careful, beloved, of these, these, these pseudo-apostles, pseudo-prophets who are getting new revelation. God has spoken all that he has said, and we believe now in a closed canon that the God has said what he wanted to say. He has revealed what he has wanted to, what he wants to reveal, and scripture is sufficient for us. He, there's something specifically here that Peter wants to remind them of. Look at verse three. He's saying, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days scoffing, following their own sinful desires. The truth is of the utmost importance, according to Peter. Scoffers, beloved, are mockers. First of all, he says, let me tell you something about these mockers. Let me share with you their lifestyle. He says, they're going to mock you, not first out of intellectualism, but because of their own sinful living. See, here's what the mockers think. They believe if Christ does not return, then there is no judgment. And if there is no judgment, then they can live however they desire. Thus, the end times are not convenient for their lifestyle. They desire to avoid the day of accountability. He deals with their lifestyle. Then he says, let me share with you their logic. These scoffers, these mockers. He says, in addition to their lifestyle, let me address their flawed logic. In verse 4, he says, they will sing, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The logic of these mockers is that the promise of the Lord's coming cannot be true because ever since the time of the patriarchs, nothing has changed. The world continues to be as it always has been. 
The argument given by these mockers is that if the second coming has not yet happened, thank you, you can help me preach, then it never will. What these mockers are implying, listen, at the British church, you can talk back to the preacher, you're good. What these mockers are implying is that the created world has continued as it always has without any cosmic intervention by God. So Peter says, let me address this flawed logic. He says, first, these mockers deliberately forget you see what he does there? He, at first, he said, I'm going to remind y'all because these false teachers and these mockers, they, they like to forget the truth. He says, I, they deliberately, willingly, intentionally forget certain facts pertinent to this issue. He says, first of all, they intentionally forget rather than remember that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Thank you. Here, here's the argument. Peter is saying that God was clearly involved in the world because it was by his word that the heavens and the earth was created. Matter of fact, in the beginning, the earth was mainly water and God separated the waters from the waters. He put space between them. God clearly intervened to bring order out of chaos on the earth. Peter's point is basically that God is indeed involved in the world. He doesn't stop there. He reminds his readers that God intervened not only at creation, but he also intervened when the world became corrupt and evil. He intervened by judging evil men, by flooding the world with water. And Peter's argument is just like God waited to judge the world from the time of creation to the time of the flood, he's waiting now. The current heaven and the earth are being stored up to be destroyed by fire. So clearly, Peter's goal in this first section is to refresh our memory concerning mockers who will deny the return of Christ and remind us that just like God judged the world in the past, he will do it again. So beware of these mockers. That's the first thing he wants us to know is that remember the truth. Don't forget it. Remember the truth about the Lord's coming. But, but, but he also wants us to remember, secondly, church, that God's timing is not our timing. Look, look at the text. So the, 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 the scoffers, their argument is that the Lord cannot be coming again in judgment because too much time has elapsed. The delay has been too long. So Peter deals with the issue of timing in this section. Verse 8, he says, But do not overlook... This one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. Peter most likely is thinking or recalling Psalm number 90, verse 4, where Moses writes, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Peter says to them 
and to us, God does not count time like we count time. God is eternal and not bound by time. What seems like a long time to us is but a moment with God. The marking of time, friends, is irrelevant to God because he transcends it. Peter's, Peter's argument here is that what takes a thousand years for man takes one day with God. Therefore, Peter concludes in verse 9 that God is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. The coming of the Lord is not delayed. God is right on schedule. His schedule. But Peter says, listen, God's waiting is on purpose. It reveals something. God's waiting reveals something about the nature of God. Here it is. Peter says, God is patient toward you. You missed a good spot to say amen. Beloved, here's why that's good news. Because God has every right to immediately destroy us when we sin. He has every right not to save any one of us. But that's not his nature. His nature is to be patient, long-suffering, and forbearing. This is exactly what God revealed to Moses and the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. When Moses asked God, he said, Lord, show me your glory. God said, I will cause my goodness to pass before you, but you cannot see my face. And here's how the Lord revealed himself to Moses when he passed by him. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Here it is, slow to anger. This is patience and abounding in steadfast love. Beloved, that's the God we serve. A God that is merciful, gracious, and slow to anger. Question that we must ask ourselves though is why is God so patient with sinners? Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. The Lord does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Beloved, God's desire is that no person would perish under his judgment. God's desire is that all people would repent and be saved from his wrath. Now, 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 let's have a little fun. We must be clear that this verse is not teaching universal salvation. Universalism is the doctrine that all people will eventually be saved. And beloved, that is the furthest from the truth. God himself has said that he will elect or choose some. He, he himself said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Implying that some will receive mercy and some will not. So clearly, the, the teaching throughout all the scripture is that some will be saved and some will not be saved. 
What is this verse teaching us then, Pastor? When Peter writes that God does not wish any to perish, he's referring to God's desired will, not his decorative will. God desires all to be saved, but he does not decree all to be saved. Uh, wait a minute, Pastor, that don't sound good. If God desires all to be saved, why does he just not decree all to be saved? <sighs> Let's deal with this some. Let me give an imperfect illustration. Help me preach. How many of you desire all children to have a safe, loving home? Thank you. Everybody's hands up. Here's the thing. Though we have the desire, not every Christian has decided to open their homes to children in need. Desire and our actual will. Okay, hold on. You're saying, yeah, yeah, but we're different. We can only have so many kids in our home. Let's say every Christian opened their home and we had enough homes for all children. Here's what you have to realize. Is that there was still, even if every Christian opened their home for a child, there would still be children without a home. Not because there are not enough homes. That's not the issue. The issue is that some children will still make a willful decision to not abide by the rules of the home or they will prefer their own freedom or because of some other choice. Though we all have the desire for all children to have a safe and loving home, we will still have children who will not have a safe, loving home because of the sinful rebellion of some children. In like manner, all men are sinners by nature and by choice. And because of this, some will reject God's grace and God's patience does eventually Come to an end. Okay. Let me give you another thing. You didn't like that illustration. Why, why is it that God desires all to be saved but doesn't decree all to be saved? Here, here's, here's, here's actually the best answer I can give you. It's a mystery. There is some tension that we have to live in. Here's what I can say. Here's what scripture has revealed about this issue. First of all, God is sovereign. He does as he pleases. He has mercy on who he chooses to have mercy. And it's all because of his own good pleasure. Some people say, but Brandon, that's just, that just doesn't sound fair. And let me Actually, I want to agree with you. It is not fair. But that's a reason to rejoice. We don't want God to be fair with us. Because if God was fair, then we all would be destined for destruction. Beloved, the fairness of God demands the justice of God. And the justice of God demands death. Eternal separation from God. That is what we deserve. 
That is what is fair. God, for his own good pleasure and for his own reasoning that he has not revealed to us, has chosen to have mercy on some. Now, here's the thing. On one hand, yes, we ought to have a hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'm in that number. I'm glad to be in that number. That God decided to have mercy upon me. But here's the thing. He has not told us who are part of the chosen. And so our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel to all people. That is our responsibility. So God's desire is that all would be saved. That all would come to repentance, not wishing that any should perish. But God doesn't decree everyone. And that is his prerogative because he is sovereign. Well, Peter ends this section by affirming the certainty of the day of the Lord in verse 10. He says, it will come suddenly like a thief in the current heavens and the earth will be dissolved. The coming of Christ will come certainly and suddenly. In light of this truth, what should we do? Verse 12 says, we wait for and hasten the day of the Lord. We wait. We wait. Now, now, but this is not idle waiting, church. This is expectant waiting. When you wait expectantly, you prefer, excuse me, you prepare for what you are waiting on. You've seen it before, we, and you've probably done it. This is what expecting parents do when the wife is pregnant. When they're getting ready for their first child, they don't, they don't just wait nine months later and say, all right, the baby's here, let's get them a room. Let's get them clothes. Let's get them a bed. We don't do that. No, as soon as it happens, we start planning baby showers. We start thinking of colors for the nursery. We prepare for that great day. And this is how we ought to wait, church. We get ready. We prepare for that great day when our Lord shall return. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. He said, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch, church. To watch is to be on high alert. It's to stay ready. Beloved, are you ready? For the coming of the Lord. How then, pastor, do we make ourselves ready for the coming of the Lord? Peter tells us in verses 14 through 16, he says, you ready yourselves by being holy. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent. That's the imperative in the sentence. That's the command. And that's the application for us. To be diligent is to be zealous, to be eager, to make every effort. Our duty is to make every effort to be found by the Lord when he comes without spot or blemish. 
blameless in character and reputation. We ought to be pure in conduct and holy in our daily walk. Our future informs our present. So because we know the Lord is coming back, we live in the present like he is coming back. When everything is exposed in the day of the Lord, we want to be found without spot or blemish. Not only do we make ourselves ready through holiness, but Peter says, finally, you also have to resist the error of lawless people. That's verses 17 through 18. He says, finally, in light of the coming of Christ, Peter gives two final imperatives in verse 17 and 18, and 18, a negative and a positive. The first one is a negative in verse 17. He says, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. The words take care mean to be on one's guard against something. Beloved, thank you, Holy Spirit. For us, waiting on the Lord is not passive. We don't just sit on our hands and say, Lord, you're coming today. No, we are active as we wait. We are to be on guard against false teaching, against the error of lawless people. Be on guard. Watch, this is, some, this is a very active waiting. Jesus told us that we must be about our Father's business. I must do the works of him that sent me while it is day, for night is coming. When no man can work. Beloved, we ought to be on guard against the error of these lawless people. Who are these lawless people? The false teachers he talked about in chapter 2. And also here in chapter 3, they mock those of us who believe in the coming of the Lord. If we give in to their error, we will be led astray. We'll no longer be on the safe ground of the truth of Christ. The second imperative in verse 18 is a positive. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. John Piper says that, that, that what we have to keep in mind is that Peter's probably thinking of a tree. And this, a tree, when it's planted, it, it can do two things. One, it can be blown away by every wind of false doctrine and teaching. And, he's, and Peter tells us to be on guard against that. But be like a tree that's firmly planted and growing in the grace of and knowledge of Christ. Beloved, we are to move toward Christ daily, more and more, getting closer to Christ. Movement matters. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we come to faith, the Bible says we are born again. We are infants, babes in Christ. But we are to not remain babes. We are to grow. 
mature. Worship team, you can come back. So friends, love it. The Lord is coming again. This time when he's coming. First time he came to save and deliver. This time he's coming to judge. When he comes, how will he find you? Are you ready? For that great day when our Lord shall return. There's something that I glossed over here. What do we do in light of the truth that the Lord is coming again? Peter says, wait for, and then he says this, and hasting, hasten the day of the Lord. I hear so many Christians saying, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, come, Lord Jesus. If we want to speed that up, how do we do that? The apostle Peter says, by holy and pure conduct. Godliness. The right attitude will lead to right action. So if we want God to hurry up that day when he sends his son back, his people need to commit to holiness and godliness. But we rejoice in this truth as well. The one reason Jesus has not come back, even after 2,000 years, Because God is patient. Mockers, they saw patience as a vice. Peter says we ought to see God's patience as a virtue. But this is very personal, the patience of God. The text says he is patient toward you. Not just everybody, but this, this is his elect, his chosen, his children. He's patient toward us. He's waited for us. The gathering in of his elect. And for that, we ought to be thankful. And we worship the Lord our God. Let's respond now.